Hello and welcome to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Networks podcast. I am your host, Dr. Grace Mansour-Rusu, and today we have a special guest, Jason Shonibare, who is a final year trainee educational psychologist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, which is a course which is accredited by the University of Essex. Educational psychology professional doctorate courses are government funded so if anyone is interested to pursue this form of psychology they have to apply to these courses via an online portal because they're funded by the government they're quite competitive to get on during this episode we also talk about clinical psychology as well and that's another course that is funded by NHS trusts in the UK which is why they're probably so competitive to get on but we'll talk about clinical psychology in another episode. So Jason really does go into detail about his journey to educational psychology, what he does on a daily basis on his course, and it's a really fascinating and really interesting episode. So stay tuned to listen to him and how he has got where he has. Thank you for listening in to another podcast episode of the Black Business Psychology Network's podcast. And we have another special guest on today. So would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jason uh, Shunibare. I am a trainee educational psychologist studying at the Tavistock and Portman Clinic. Uh, very glad to be here. Thank you, Grace, for having me. Thank you so much for sparing the time. I know you're a busy guy and getting you for an hour just to talk about your kind of career history is really, really good. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will be really, they will really like to hear your story because I think when I, for example, studied psychology, I had a stint. I was like, hmm, educational psychology, that looks fun. And then someone came in and did a talk and I was like, yeah, no, no, that's not for me. <laughs> but it was nearly there because I love interaction with people, especially young people, especially in an educational setting. And I like psychology and I liked all the developmental modules. So, yeah, like what led you to EdPsych? Um it's funny, it's funny you say about how you opted against it, because mm. I think when I was doing my undergrad, um, yeah, it was all really like, you know, you got the little BPS flyer which said, these are the careers in psychology, <laughs> and I said occupational. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not going to fly. But I really... It didn't seem to be as interesting as, to be honest, clinical, not as educational. Mm. Um, and that was always the shiny, the shiny new, not new, but shinier option that most people were kind of pushed towards, if I'm honest. So to be honest, I I, I stumbled into educational and I right. wish I had done it sooner because honestly, I think it is the better fit for me. Okay. Um, so what got me into educational? It's a long story there, Grace. <laughs> You've got time. You've got time. <laughs> um, okay. So it kind of, it kind of ties into my, my career history before I got onto the doctorate so Mm -hmm. um, I spent a lot of time working with adults and one of the places where I worked with adults was the uh, North Camden Crisis House okay yeah which was a mental health support center uh 24 hours Mm. a day 365 days a year uh shift-based work supporting people in mental health crisis Mm -hmm. but what I liked about working there was that it was a recovery model which meant that there was less emphasis although there was definitely some medical model mm. and psychiatric involvement, there was less emphasis on that. And it was meant to be an alternative to a psychiatric admission. So rather than an inpatient stay, you could come to that house and have, you know, not the doors locked and not medication uh, forcefully or strongly encouraged to be 
administered to you mm. and rather come there and manage things in a very different way so that was interesting to me and it kind of started me on a journey of alternative ways to approach men- mental health but while I was there um, some 18 year olds you know just on that cusp of adult came into the house mm. and I was just shocked and saddened to be honest with you uh, to, to see people of that age in such a level of crisis that they mm. would require that level of specialist tertiary uh, input uh, from the NHS. Mm. And um, to be honest with you, I also connected more with those people when I was doing my job. Um, I felt like I could speak to them from a place where they could relate and I could relate. Yeah. And we, we generally vibed more. And that's mm. a weird thing to say when thinking about mental health support, but mm. that job working all the hours that you did you saw people in all sorts of facets of their you know in, in your your night you know when you're getting ready for bed you're a different person to when you're at work but this place was a, a home it was a crisis yeah. house so that 24-hour support meant that you saw people at different parts of their themselves yeah and also in a very in need place yeah um, so seeing that at such a young age like 18 19 20 it just really got me thinking about what is going on with mental health in the youth today. Yeah. And it started me on my career towards working more with young people. I see. And, and then from there, I mean, I can tell you more about this later, but from there, I kind of just d- deep dived into youth-based mental health support mm-hmm. and then realised that there's a whole doctorate based around developmental psychology. <laughs> clinical does, you know, definitely clinical psychologists do work in those facets and capacities, but mm-hmm. I actually feel like educational and the school aspect, like... You think about occupational psychology is about focusing on jobs and careers and stuff. Yeah. Children and young people, so much of their life is their education and structured environments that come from those educational settings. Yeah. So why wouldn't you think about the deep levels in which those same institutes and systems can impact and affect the lives of those young people? Absolutely. Yeah, it made a lot of sense. And uh, that kind of started me on my journey. And then, yeah. That sounds really interesting. Again, um, what we've heard a few times is that a lot of people who want to study psychology are drawn to the clinical, the big shiny golden ticket of clinical, and they either doggedly, determinedly get where they need to be to be and become a clinical psychologist, or they take detours to the other areas of psychology. So yeah, I wanted to do clinical, but then I became an occupational psychologist. I wanted to do clinical, then I became like um, a mental health practitioner. But I think because we start off with human behavior, human behavior is everywhere. And one thing that I think is fascinating about educational is where can we kind of, where can we start the interventions early? So they feel, so people feel like they have a healthy relationship with learning. And then that can sometimes translate to a healthy relationship with themselves a holistic kind of shape of mental health and mental wellness so I think that's really a good point absolutely yeah and I just just to add to what you just said I think it's so true and if in fact when I was in the crisis center one of the things that I found really interesting was early intervention work and mm. that in itself was a whole service mm. so I was like well why isn't this the universal model why are we starting at the point when they're adults and and then I realized that I'm just missing out on a whole level of awareness about what does exist for um psychological care and that's that's interesting to me in that you know coming out of an undergrad there wasn't more time spent thinking about how how educational uh, psychology can inform so much about how someone develops and moves through life like 
as you say, early intervention is so key and preventative measures are so key, yet we're not spending as much time thinking about the youth of the, the future generations. Like it, it does feel like a, why is clinical so, so pushed and mm. educational perhaps not and other psychology perhaps not. I wonder what that was about, but hey-ho, here we are. <laughs> no, it's interesting you say that about like educational because people... A, a child's first kind of like step into the world is usually in some kind of learning environment. Mm. That is when you're socializing with other people your age and with other adults. Mm. So that is literally the earliest experience of other people you ever have. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how that's not even thought about. People don't really think about that objectively. So, so your educational background. So what was your journey to? Because you said you wanted to do clinical more, so some of your work experience was geared towards that. But what about like earlier than that? When did you decide to study psychology, and then how did it pan out? Um, okay, so yeah, I, I grew up in Hackney, and I went to a Hackney primary school, <laughs> and then moved further east to Leytonstone. I went to a East London secondary school. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, they weren't the best quality schools. So I didn't think that I, you know, I wasn't educationally minded. But my mum, in her Bayesian ways, was very educationally minded. And mm -hmm. my brother and I were both strongly encouraged to pursue higher education. Mm -hmm. Like, even if we didn't want to. Like, <laughs> you didn't have a choice, did yeah, you, Jason? It was, it was expected that that's what you do. And her point, and I do stand like she's a smart woman, you needed to uh, give yourself choice later on in life, particularly coming from a black background um, mm. and being a boy, a male. My mum was very conscious of that, not us not, us not mixing with the wrong crowds, mm. us having a good start in life and us kind of securing a future where we had choice and options and could look, look after a family adequately. Mm. Mm. So my graphic design dreams went all the way out the window. Um, but, you know, I still dabble in art sometimes, <laughs> but... No, it, it made a lot of sense and I can see why so many families, black families, are that way inclined. Mm. But, um, yeah, I did secondary school and primary school. I did quite well, actually, if I'm honest, in mm. terms of my grades. I was definitely in the higher classes and yeah. often one of the few black boys in the higher classes. I remember mm. in maths at secondary, there were two of us and that mm. other black boy, who's now a black man, is a surgeon. So wow, that, you're in good company then. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That to me is really interesting and I do wonder like if you could do a poll about all the other students in our maths class at that top set. Mm. I wonder where else where else where everyone else would be and yeah. if it was that me and this other black gentleman were having to work extra hard <laughs> in those sets and then having to prove ourselves and, and it's kind of manifested in our outcomes or kind of our, our life and careers. So yeah. that to me has always been interesting. I bumped into him the other day and told him I was studying and we had a we had a moment, you know. <laughs> it was nice to reconnect and see that um, there are people who look like you doing similar things in that capacity. Absolutely. But yeah, college. I kind of went off the rails. Um, I kind of enjoyed myself a bit too much at college, and so my grades weren't amazing when I went to university. Mm. Uh, meaning, I studied at University of East London, which, mm -hmm. for all accounts, at doctoral level of psychology is amazing. Like. Really, much so. one of the best I feel. Mm. But um, undergrad, definitely not so. Um, and I don't, I don't know what that's about or why that is the case. It is, but yeah, undergrad psychology at UEL, I, I didn't, I knew it wasn't the best course out there. Mm. And my grades only allowed me to go there. Um, mm. 
and so I did my best and I got a 2-1 mm-hmm. just about um again I was one of few males on the course I think at the end of it there was quite a large dropout rate mm-hmm. and whoever finished and graduated what it was it was a very small small group of us yeah um I bonded with another gentleman who was uh Bangladeshi mm-hmm. and he and I went to a conference yeah uh, which was all about clinical psychology and <laughs> diversifying the workforce so um he's now qualified clinical psychologist uh-huh. so he stuck with it and so have I as well um but educationally I didn't see I didn't think it might ever happen I mean I'm happy to say here that it took me like a decade I'm gonna say 10 years yeah. Yeah. of managing to work different jobs and roles and get experiences before I got accepted on the course and maybe seven out of those 10 years I was applying for clinical so that doggedly wow. uh, resilience that you talk about it, it definitely I felt like that, that was once I got onto the course my life would be made and I was definitely that guy when it came to clinical but I was fortunate enough that the different experiences the different jobs that I've had which I'm happy to tell you about allowed me to still progress and develop my skill set my yeah. level of responsibility my my impact honestly speaking like my want to help people was being realized despite not getting on the course yeah and actually it became less and less important to me to get on the course yeah so and I don't want to say this smugly knowing that I am I'm on the course now but mm. the last time that I applied was the least I was the least interested in getting on like it was to me I'd almost moved past this is like my last application you know you say that every year yeah. that was actually my last application <laughs> and so I was 100% sure that if I didn't get on that time I wasn't going to try again mm. and I had made my peace with finding success and a, a pathway to wherever I wanted to be, yeah. helping people or, um, you know, doing my bit for the community through any means. It didn't have to be the doctorate in educational or clinical. Yeah. Yeah. The shift from clinical happened maybe in my seventh year of applying. Wow. And then within two applications to educational, the first one I got an interview and then the second one I got an interview and got on. Amazing. So it, it kind of felt like it was a it was the right shift and more aligned with my focus mm. in terms of working with young people mm. children and families that's so interesting like first of all hats off to you to send in all of those applications to clinical and I know that that's not a unique story and I've heard similar what made you think oh let me try out educational and see how I get on there so well, I, I did manage to get three interviews with Clinical along my journey. So right. that kind of teased that, you know, the carrot a little bit was just floating in front of me. So I was like, I'm obviously a decent enough candidate uh, mm. to some extent. And I know that a lot of it doesn't come down to what you are, rather what the course centers might be looking for year by year. Yeah. So you have, a, have to rely on a lot of things happening in your favor for you mm-hmm. to get a place and, and a hats off to anyone who's done it, Clinical or Education or anything. Absolutely. I think it does take a lot of endurance and um, mm. to be honest, family support. Like I don't think I would have been able to do it without being able to do a few voluntary jobs here and there yeah. and not feeling like I couldn't pay for food. <laughs> Legit. Like that, it boils <laughs> down to like where, how many years of voluntary work and low paid, you know, psychology assistant roles can I afford to do? And a lot of people can't afford it. They just can't. But I think it's amazing that you were able to draw on people that were close to you to just give you that support and give you that leg up 
Well, I, I was, and I'm very thankful for them and that. I'm also conscious that it was hard as a mm. black male who had been told that making money was success and having peers who went into very lucrative careers, yeah. financial sector, you know, accounting, legal, IT, yeah. and made, started making crazy money, like driving really nice cars and, uh, you know, buying houses and stuff. And I, I was still grinding it, so my career hadn't yet started. So um, that's part of the reason why I was moving away from the application process, thinking mm. that I can't keep my life on hold for this thing yeah. that may never happen. Um, but your question about why then did I switch to education, well, that's where that, that story came in about, you know, during the course of those 10 years, I was mm. able to do quite a few different jobs. And the job later on, the jobs turned to me being able to connect more with just turned adult and then that spurred my interest into moving more towards children's charities right universities and that kind of work which led me to be a good candidate for the educational psychology doctorate yeah and exactly what you were saying it sounds like it was very natural like you were kind of heading that way anyway just because your interest died there and that's where you were getting the most kind of fulfillment in yeah. in your day-to-day work also i became a dad <laughs> i should say that of course yeah <laughs> Um, and I'd always been keen to become a dad one day and it happened probably sooner than I was expecting already for mm. if I'm 100% honest and that's fine because these things happen mm. in the context of um, wanting to be a father and then becoming one mm. I did realize that, um, that that was your priorities shift and yeah. that changes again your application process and thinking mm. around that but also your want to understand this thing in front of you yeah and I know that you know you shouldn't take psychology well you can take psychology home if you do it anyway my point being we all do we all take it home exactly Um, but my my thinking was I I wonder how becoming qualified and you know not an expert but like a, a, a well trained professional in this area of child development will impact on my journey into fatherhood and relationship with my daughter yeah and it, obviously it's had a profound impact. I feel very different to how I imagine I would be if I hadn't been studying educational psychology. Absolutely. That's that's so interesting, especially the, the natural trajectory because of your life changed. So you're like, hmm, maybe I should go a bit deeper into that. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. Question about the actual doctorate, because I don't know anything about the structure of educational psychology doctoral courses or clinical it's like a haze to me so it would be really great if you could like give us an overview of what the course looks like from your perspective sure um i don't know if it, is it also helpful to me to give you a perspective of um how how you get onto the course oh yes of course <laughs> yeah that, that's a good point <laughs> no no i just it, i mean everyone's story will be different mm. and i think experience is such a broad term or word yeah. that you can make lots of things fit it but um, just a quick synopsis. So like I say, I was focused on, on clinical for a long time. Mm. So I, I did a I did a job part-time voluntarily as an assistant psych in a PTSD clinic. Okay. Um, <laughs> which I, I married with another job that I was doing paid part-time in a cultural, it was called, it was called Lambo Day Center. So it was a black and it was an Afro-Caribbean day centre for people with long and enduring mental health conditions. Okay. 
um, based in Archway, and it mm. was it was an amazing place to work actually because the whole staff team was, uh, you know, African heritage, and also, um, it, all the all the clients were all the people that used the service were and yeah. it was deliberately done, and I think mind eventually two p it over. Oh, but um, the the model was about identity and and cultural awareness, right. And, bring in a space to people where they can feel safe and contained uh, and partake in like meaningful activities during mm. the day rather than perhaps what might happen to stagnation at home or social isolation yeah. or all these other things that we know can be bad for your mental psyche. Mm. Your, your, yeah. Um, and, and really trying to support people through what is lifelong conditions and yeah. the impact of, you know, monthly, uh, strong high high intensity mental health treatments wow. um, medicinal yeah and and, and also yeah. just like um stigma if i'm honest there was so much of that that people would often talk about it we had a men's group and it was really interesting what people would bring to that that platform of trying to get support and think about themselves living lives that they'd envisaged but yeah. um being very much removed from the communities which they came from mm. because of their mental conditions so mental health conditions so I yeah that was a really interesting job um after that yeah the PTSD clinic as well and then I moved to a role in the the crisis house which I mentioned yeah um and that was much better paid I was a band five and I was feeling oh band five (laughs) and yeah it was a lot of responsibility Mm. we were doing we were working with people who had suicidal ideation Mm. um and were deliberately self-harming actively yeah um, and we had to manage that with a team of nurses and clinicians who mm-hmm. were not far away from us mm. um, as well as referrals to the inpatient unit because we weren't always able to contain the risk yeah um, I mean you know there are there are situations that became high, highly concerning and people that haven't done so well uh, didn't do so well during their stay with us so we'd have to support them to other places of support <laughs> other places you know like yeah but the aim was to get people to keep people in the community so it it wasn't in a hospital it was in a a home in Hampstead which had been converted Mm -hmm. and um and keep people out of hospitals and out of inpatient wards because yeah you know research says about your your the outcomes for people exactly um so that was an interesting role um and then I worked in a children's charity, quite mm-hmm. a famous one kids company. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, um, lots of things were learned there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> no, I, I do value my time there, if I'm honest. I mm. know it's, it's a controversial subject and people can Google and or find out about that as to why. But it is important to say, I think, that people who worked there by and large, from my experience, really had um, amazing intentions to support young people who were failed by a social care system which wasn't all-encompassing enough, indicative of the needs in in a London whereby children and young people are dealing with things that are much greater than their capacity to because their parents haven't been able to give them the resources or care that they've needed. Yeah. But on top of that, I feel like if you're saying to a child that they're not in a safe environment but they can't do much about it I'm not saying this I'm not doing this justice but I think my point is that there were gaps in the service and support that were available to them by statutory means 
I see. So a charity that came came along that could offer more was always going to be well received. Mm. Now, the model to which that's you know enacted or deployed, is, it can be questioned and argued. And yeah. I think that's important to always hold people to a high standard when they're being given taxpayers' money or mm. government funds or even private funds. Like, I think yeah. it's so important that um, charities operate in a way that is in, in, full of integrity and um, justified. Um, so I 100% agree with that. I, I just also know that um, that that role and the people that I worked with in that role, I have a lot of admiration for and gratitude because we dealt with a whole lot of needs that was otherwise not being dealt with, from legal to interpersonal, like social care, like housing. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a wraparound service. Yeah. I do feel like I made a lot of difference in the in that role. Plus, there was a massive employment of psychologists to kind of balance. So I worked in an alternative, it was called a therapeutic education centre, but it okay. was an provision. And there was a massive amount of the marrying of therapy and educational support um, in, a, in a very weird space, which seemed to work for a large part of the, the groups that attended the, the centre. Yeah. Uh, but we also had external young people that we supported who were in more, more stable institutions of mm-hmm. education. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. After kids' company. Sorry, I'm I'm going on a bit. No, no, it's okay. Like, because that children's company role does sound really interesting. And like, again, a lot of these organisations spring up because there is no, there's massive gaps in the service or the services. So someone has to come in and assume that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, organisations come and go and, you know, structures change. But has there ever, since them changing, um, has there, been anyone else to come into that kind of space that they left well honestly i don't i don't think so not in the same way because part of i feel what people's problem was with how the the ceo of that company did it was was that there was a massive grab for power um, okay and and too much of that power unchecked meant that certain things part of human nature may Mm. may have and again this is alleged um, i wasn't at those senior levels but um, they, they may have led to complacency and mm. younger young people who were already vulnerable having access to someone who has quite a lot of resource all of a sudden yeah. and has cared for them from the point of not having a company to having a quite a, a medium-sized charity with a lot of funding. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I think some of the issues that kind of can cross over with that um, that level of access can be very risky if yeah. not if not kept above board and transparent and accountable and mm. so I think you know any organization like you know we are part of an organization I think we we need to make sure that we are holding ourselves and leadership teams to account I think that's so important it's a very good point especially with with public public money public purse 100%, yeah. it's under a lot of, they're under a lot of scrutiny so you've got to be transparent but saying that, and maybe a quick segue is after I was there, mm. I, I kind of left before it was forcibly closed. Mm. I went to uh, work at a university, which was mm. for it was a, a for profit university. Okay, know? yeah, kind of like a um, capita and those. Kind yeah. Of yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Familiar with those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the the model, the, the the business model was to support foreign students to come to the UK and get a foundation level degree before yeah. progressing to a 
regular degree undergraduate yeah um and it would cost them a lot of money to do that mm. and so you got a fair few young young students coming over um, mm. sometimes underage yeah my mine is, is the term i would use yeah yeah and my job as the welfare officer was to support them right the transition with the cultural um amalgamations with the kind of um separation anxiety yeah and all the other mental health issues that may come up for any young person going through big life changes um and and yeah we talked about the public first but yeah the private sector being private and having to have uh, a stakeholder emphasis mm. profit making made my job there ethically very interesting I yeah would say. Um, and there was a lot for me to think about and manage but it was helpful to work in the private sector and see how uh, these things are taken up yeah or not and what what support can be offered from from a perspective of you know a therapeutic background wanting to be helpful to a yeah. community of young people and then after that I went to work in a local authority for a special school and I was the okay. EHCP coordinator there what does EHCP stand for? Yeah, so <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we're full of acronyms us in psychology. <laughs> Education, health, and care plan. And, uh, it used to be called a statement of needs. Oh yes, yes, I'm yeah. familiar with that. So um, any any child or young person who's got significant barriers to their learning mm. should be mm. able to be eligible for one, and then that would involve additional funding being yeah. able to be uh, attributed, allocated to supporting their needs in school. So that sounds like a perfect pre-job before the doctorate because that's very aligned with what educational psychologists do. So when I was there, I would uh, receive reports from EPs right. and uh, other professionals, amalgamate them into a, a bigger report, then send to the local authority so that funds right. could be approved right. or make adjustments per year on year, an yeah. annual review. But now I'm on the other side where I'm submitting my report. Right. The advice that I am suggesting or the recommendation I'm suggesting are used in the context of helping a young person from mm. a new perspective, so mm. bringing that psychological theory, etc. Really interesting. Like so those... Sorry, that wasn't even close to your question. Your question no. The doctor. Um, no, but I think it's important to for people to hear the journey. Like, and I think, and based on the events that I've been doing and talking to other people in different areas of psychology there is a frustration with graduates coming out of psychology like first of all where are the jobs what job should I do and it's about crafting your own career around the path that you see yourself in it might not be one path it might be a couple but trying things out is number one number two um, being open to different experiences and as hard as it is it's to say about failure failure is horrible it's not a nice part of any career and it does seem like careers in psychology are kind of checkered with some failures but really bouncing back because you know the amount of people I know that have applied to a clinical doctorate one time I, I don't know or education at one time I don't know yeah. those people maybe yeah. they obviously do exist but it's not yeah. as common like there are things that you have to do so it's important to see like you know you've had a checkered career you've had loads of different really interesting experiences yeah. but it's led you to be the professional that you are today absolutely i would agree with that um i forgot to mention i was a special constable <laughs> oh my gosh what have you what haven't you done <laughs> special constable yeah i wanted to diversify my, my voluntary experience so right I, I, I did that for a bit for like a year and a bit actually 
you know, in light of current events and mm. people's feelings towards the police institute, mm. I kind of, I, I don't regret any of my experiences. I think they've made me who I am. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do, I would approach it differently if I had to do that again. Although mm. I am, like I say, I do appreciate what I've, what I have done and why. Yeah. But um, absolutely, you're right. And I think ch- checkered is the right word. And psychology is a kind of career where I feel like personal lived life experience is so important that like you yeah. have to. And I didn't want to hear that when I was applying for the answer of undergrad. Like, I was like, come on, let me just get this nice little cushy and then we can move to band six, seven. And Exactly. No one's, no one's trying to hear that because I was in that, in my head, capitalist, gain money, move forward. It, it wasn't so much about the service. I was mm. providing it was more about career progression because I felt like that was the journey and I feel I, yeah I, I think I've come a long way obviously it's nice to secure a nice job quickly but, but I would be a very different person and professional if I'd just gone straight from undergrad to doctorate or even masters and then doctorate I think that counts for a lot I agree I think again because we're similar ages like I, I look back at what I was like 10 years ago 12 years ago in the workplace and like oh yeah I've changed I've learned through the mistakes or bad experiences and not to negate those things but you know you have to end up rolling with the punches and like oh yeah I've seen that before or seen that before I know what to do now I know how to navigate that situation so it doesn't like consume me or change me negatively 100% so important um but yeah, if you if you do get on straight out of undergrad, like more power to you. Absolutely, yeah. You will have a wonderful skill set that you can use quite early on in your career, mm. and it, it will just be different. But I definitely personally value what yeah I value what I've been through to where I am now. Definitely, life experience does count for a lot. I do think that it does. Not to, not to say everyone should intentionally make their life harder just so they can have some empathy when they talk to clients. But yeah. If you happen to have that kind of start, it's not, it won't do you a disservice. Yes, absolutely. So shall I try, try and answer your question, your actual question? <laughs> yes, please. Um, um, no pressure. The structure of the doctorate mm. is um, a three-year professional doctorate. And mm. by my mind, that means that you are uh, going to be doing a fair bit of placement. So okay. learning on the job, as it were. Um, year so year one is more focused on study. So you you will do a placement in a. It depends on where you go actually. Mm. So where I am at the Tavistock Comportment Clinic, mm. um, it's one of the it's the only place that does a educational psychology doctorate, which gives you a CAMS. Okay. Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service in year one. Everywhere else doesn't. No. Partly because the Tavistock Comportment Clinic is a clinic, mm. and. It fitted quite well with my background coming from clinical. I think that was a good selling point for me. Mm. Um, But what I would say is that, um, yeah, and CAMS is always interesting to work in. It ties in with um, my interest in helping youth in general. So, yeah, um, year one, every course will also do some sort of local authority year one placement. And that will be Mm -hmm. one day a week, starting from a certain point. Mm -hmm. And it might have a block of four or six weeks okay. uh, twice in that first year just uh-huh. so you get a proper feel shadowing opportunities mm-hmm. chance to in, in, embed yourself in a team feel like you're part of the actual workforce and not just studying the theory behind mm. what informs that and that was cool I really enjoyed mine I was in Tower Hamlets I learned a lot there 
again, I'm going to go back to the socio-economic aspect of it. Poor borough. Yeah. It's one of the poorest in London. Well, it's kind of skewed because of Canary Wharf. But yeah, it's one of them. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And also there's a large um, South Asian community there. So that was really interesting to to approach psychology in that perspective. And again, (laughs) thinking about communities of London. Yeah. What, what is psychology to them and how can you apply it? So then year two and year three, you're much more in placement okay. and you are studying at uni for us clinic. And th- that means that you're doing three days a week placement okay. throughout the year and two days a week study. And then there'll be a massive amount of assignments. But the start of year two is when you're going to be putting together your research protocol. Yeah. In your thesis ideas mm-hmm. and then developing that to a finished product by year three may times i believe yeah so and we haven't got any exams but i know some of the mm-hmm. other course centers do really different models for how people are assessed we do a lot of essays and written work mm-hmm. um, but we may also do a few uh, presentations yeah and um, there's portfolios to hand in when you yeah do some reflective writing I think that's kind of standard nowadays gosh every all the time the reflection and I reflected upon my reflections and then I found um absolutely and then I think an important part of the course uh, structure is the supervision that you get from placement of course and from your personal supervisor uni-based and when you get your research started you'll get a research supervisor as well so right. there's quite a lot of spaces for you to grow you are especially where we are at the tavi um there was an element of being broken down and rebuilt um, <laughs> it sounds like a medicine degree that's what happens they like they just knock you i don't know if they rebuild you but they knock you down quite a lot <laughs> well yeah i mean you want to come out the other side feeling competent and mm. there are a list of competencies and proficiencies which you're aiming to uh tick off as you go through the course um and that's just so you can register and say you're qualified ethically in the field of psychology so yeah all there's a bunch of stuff that you need to do if i'm honest but but the general structure of the three-year doctorate that sounds so interesting honestly because i did a phd research base so it was literally like here you go here's your two supervisors live your life there was no lectures it was just all me poking my supervisors getting them to read stuff and it was really lonely and one of the things and obviously you need a lot of self-motivation, but one of the things I didn't realise with a professional doctorate is that you have much more structure um, and you have like deadlines and like milestones that you can see. You do have milestones with a research um, PhD or research doctorate, but it's it's kind of different. Um, but that sounds hard, definitely, with the placement, obviously, like being in placement two days or three days a week, you still have that paperwork. Then you've got to come home and do some essays and some self-reflections on top of that um and i I have to say i admire you and anyone who does that that style of phd or that style of you know learning it's so self-directed that i i think i would struggle and therefore didn't pursue it Mm -hmm. um with the element of uh being in a workspace i definitely felt like that was where my skill set was um, and, and less so with academic writing. Yeah. So I would say, I mean, if people are listening, I would say to anyone who's worried about the academic writing, you are right to be worried, but also that um, there is so much more to the course. So you, you get quite a lot of support. Um, and if I can do it, I think almost anyone can probably do it if they try. So 
and I'm not, I'm not, I'm just about doing it. I'm like, <laughs> wait for it. There's hoops to jump through, but that's mm. not the job at the end of the day. Proving your competencies, it, it, I kind of don't agree with it. Like, you know, yeah, you should be assessed on the job, but I yeah. appreciate that there are standards and uh, it's quite a significant qualification, you know, yeah. the highest level of education that we have. Yeah. And a lot of power and responsibility mm. comes with holding that title. So then how how you implement your practice and support certain communities it should you should be held to a high standard and you should know your stuff being unleashed onto people's lives but at the same time at least you have that practical element where i'm sure you do get assessed on your placements as well to a certain extent um to show that you're hitting those practical milestones and the competence levels. And that's really important. And that does show like a bit more of a holistic view of what mm-hmm. education is. It's not all about book learning, as we all know, especially for a practical course is a professional course. You come out as a professional, not as a academic, not that there's anything wrong with an academic, but no. it's really important to be a, a decent and well-rounded practitioner. And, and that's exactly what you're becoming. Yeah. And that's that kind of hops back to what we were talking about with the life experience. Because if you come straight out of undergrad and or master's, mm-hmm. you, you, you may be an awesome person. I'm sure many people are who do that um, in terms of your roundedness. But if you haven't developed skills to, you know, talk about like medical doctors in their bedside manner. Yeah. Imagine that like times 10 or 100 if you're working in communities, and I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, sadly, you know, corona has affected a lot of people. You're dealing with child bereavement on quite a lot at the moment in our in our profession. So to walk into a room where a child has recently lost a parent and manage that situation as the, the, the people are looking to you in that room, the teachers, the parents, yeah. Yeah. potentially the child, mm. to offer advice and guidance on how to manage that situation for mm. all three different people with their different needs. I think as an EP, that's a massive level of responsibility. And if you haven't got people skills, haven't developed them yet well enough, then you may find those spaces more challenging. Yeah. I found those spaces, I mean, not that that's a forte, but that's where my confidence lies in those spaces mm. and being sensitive, especially having worked with deliberate self-harm and suicidal ideation. So yeah. I, I do feel like I could manage some of those things better than perhaps someone who hadn't had those experiences. And it was the academic writing because I skipped a master's and you can do that at the EP, the doctoral yeah. level, you can go straight with what with enough experience in a two one degree you can go yeah. straight to the doctorate there were there were definite pitfalls to that approach that i struggle and i'm full of anxiety whenever i'm told i've got an assignment due um so yeah i think people will have their own journeys that bring them to different places but it's important to know where your strengths lie and use them to bolster your weaknesses or areas for development absolutely no that sounds really interesting especially that side we're talking about for want of a better term bedside manner and how you actually deal with a practical problem, like a poor a kid has lost a parent like that. How do you deal with that? And at that point, you're not an ed psych to the child. You're somebody who's in a position of authority and they want some support and you just have to give it to them. So how do you do that? And how do you kind of utilize some of the skills that you've learned to, to be able to feel confident in that situation? Because it isn't, it's not easy. Definitely not. It's a really difficult position to be in, but again, having that 
confidence behind you to know that you can do it mm-hmm. and help the child i suppose those are the two most important things yeah and um, we're all still learning so mm-hmm. we may not always get it right but there's mm-hmm. definite yeah the child should feel the impact the, yeah. the psychology that you give them um, and giving away that psychology should should be should be the goal you, sh- you, sh- you shouldn't it, yeah you want to you want to share the knowledge yeah and, and collaborate i think that that's that's really key because you don't actually have all the answers that's not what you're there for you're uh, there no and it's interesting i've been comparing medical doctors to well i've, I've made reference to medical doctors quite a lot and mm. again I, i'm not trying to say i know a lot about the medical field but there is this talk about the expert model which is approaches to patient support i'm saying patient deliberately mm. because in 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 my with my particular style of training mm. we try and move away from that as much as possible right. and i think collaboration and less prescriptive ways of working where you're co co uh, constructing yeah. outcomes for children young people and families is is one of the best things about my role like our, our title studying at the tavi isn't just educational psychologist or child psychologist mm. it's child community and educational psychologist mm. uh doctorate and that's very important like i'm partly because of my being a black man but also because of the idea that you know class and poverty and all these things can intersect across See. society in so many different ways yeah you find a pocket of people with a large amount of need yeah you're deployed to support them how can you build rapport mm. offer psychology and theory to evidence what you're doing um, apply it in a meaningful way review the outcomes of these things like all of that mm-hmm. all of those skills are going to be key to you being good at your job and and bringing bringing about change in a way that you want to so i think there's so much to be said about the skills that you're developing as you become a qualified educational psychologist and i think that part about you working in london and any other inner city area or area with you know high higher levels of diversity is really key because if you're not attuned to, or if you haven't educated or you haven't been brought up in those kinds of environments, being a practitioner, obviously every child needs different, the same kind of thing to accept that like everyone has the same needs, but how does that manifest in different cultural backgrounds and cultural expressions? And if you've never seen a certain way before, how, to, to you as a professional like you're thinking oh that's wrong because it's not done in this way and it's actually well is it wrong though or is it just that you're not used to that you're not aware of what that means in the context so again I think it's even more important I mean I always bang on about that's the whole point of this podcast about diversity in psychology and how diversity brings around better well-rounded outcomes for the people that you're supposed to be helping and without people like you how do you get that in an authentic way? And you. Us. People like <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, it's really Absolutely. important. Yeah, yeah. Um. Um, okay, so the next question is, we've talked a little bit about what you do as a trainee EdSite, yeah. but what does the kind of things that a qualified EdSite do? A few of the main tasks and... Um, yeah, well, we we have an interesting acronym for that, um, <laughs> as always. Um, so I think most EPs, if you're asking this question, will probably answer like this. And it's that we have, um, it's CATER, C-A-I-T-R, 
I love a good acronym. They do love them in psych, don't they? Yeah, they really do. <laughs> Uh, there might have been a, probably an adaption or an uh, extension of that cater, but anyway, mm. the gist of it is C, which is consultation, and that's right. kind of uh, working with professionals and adults around the child or young person, mm-hmm. uh, trying to un- unpick and explore um, and gently interrogate, kind of bring about change talk and solution-focused ways of working to have a com. It's, it's a conversation, but it's it's a unique skill um, kind of like an interview where you're trying to get to a piece of information that might help you with your formulation um, yeah and that that in itself is, is work so you can just you can be cons- consultation based as a service right. or as an EP mm. and literally just work with the people around the child and young person okay. and not do any direct work um, and that's a really yeah really credible way to work like people build their, their careers on that so consultation and um a is assessment, which mm-hmm. is bread and butter of psychology work, doing a bunch of stuff with your little toolkit. Psychologists, educational psychologists particularly, will be using a lot of um, direct assessment, which could be structured co- cognitive assessment, you know, the psychometrics that we've seen and heard about before, then less, less structured versions of those. So we have that dynamic assessment about um, a score or maybe a number, rather more about when you're working with the child or young person in that moment what techniques and skills are you deploying help them move from a place where they're not knowing tasks and how to complete it to knowing of how to complete that task and that the, the distance traveled helps them to identify helps you to identify some techniques that you've helped that could be adapted or uh, used in the classroom environment i've given it a really butchered explanation but <laughs> the gist of it is that there are different ways to assess children psychologists Educational psychologists may differ in terms of which they more identify with and how each serves the community in which it's being used in. Because the cognitive assessments are often normalized against certain groups of young people. And you, you know this, Grace, because I can see it in your I can see in your face what I'm talking about. Yeah. But that can that can prove problematic if you have a child who's, say for example, in a asylum seeking and and they, they weren't included in the original normalized sample. What you're comparing that child, the child you've just assessed to, isn't the norm that is included in the, the data base. Anyway, assessment. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then we have... Quick, um, quick question in there. So with EdPsych, I mean, sorry, with occupational psychologists, you, we, you don't have to, and it's not part of the course, but you can if you want to do a qualification in... Uh, it's now called test user ability and test user personality, which used to be called level A, level B. I'm not sure. If, it sounds very similar. Maybe what Ed Sykes have the same kind of test user taker training as well. Ours isn't definitely. Ours is definitely not called that. Um, but but the assessment that we do on young people is. Well, I'm trying to understand what you mean exactly. So for you know, like for jobs. Yeah. you do a graduate role or you apply for a graduate role and you'll get like an ability test and it's like either like the Watson Glazer or some like a cognitive ability test basically but yeah. it's for the for workplace settings so all the norm groups will be on different people from different areas but obviously for the adult population rather than the child population yeah, yeah. and I'm sure there's standardized tests that you use for the more quantitative side for child assessment and I was wondering if there was like you had to do a qualification before you were able to assess. I see what you mean. Um, and there is a mixed <laughs> response to that. Right. A mixed, it's split how people think about that. Mm. So at, at our university, we don't. 
yeah. we're trained by professionals who use these tools we practice on each other to be honest mm. <laughs> like if you've got kids at home and then you you eventually with confidence start to use them in the field with a mm. lot of support mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but other course centers i know for sure specific tests they will they will get um, a mini qualification yeah yeah that's yeah. basically this the same as like the oxyc model but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that I think your course, by the sounds of it, it sounds like your course that you're on very much suits how you learn, your ethos, your values, a lot more than possibly other courses that you could have been on. Um, at, you mean particularly being at the TAVI? Yeah. Uh, agrees, yeah. And actually you get to apply for four. Uh-huh. And whilst you can you can have a broad application form which mm. targets all four, mm. I took the very <laughs> risky approach to just tailor it to the just apply to one wow so, so they I had no choice four, but oh right 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 three, right right they knew that the application wasn't, <laughs> wasn't for them it, it was for tabby it was and it works well but they'd also given me an interview before so i knew right. that i fit them and they fit me yeah and that matching is actually really important it right. does sound i really do think it makes a massive difference to your experience yeah. and the outcomes yeah um i'll just quickly run through to the other sorry ones. i cut you off there not at all not at all intervention which mm-hmm. is just once you've done your assessment you want to make sure that you can uh you can deploy an mm-hmm. evidence-based intervention to support mm-hmm. the needs that you've identified from your assessment mm-hmm. uh, t is training so that would be uh the adults and your parents and staff of schools that yeah. you may want to be more skilled up or more reflective or whatever you want to call it you'd want to offer that as an ep yeah and r is the research part Right. to thesis and right. or other publications that you might do when yeah. you're qualified yeah now that sounds really interesting and do you know what it was I think when I got um when I was undergrad and there was a careers talk with an ed psych I'm pretty sure he's focused on the first or he emphasized the first what was the first letter consultation I think it was consultation I was like what well, it sounds like it's so removed from the child I want to work with the child this is not what I want to do and then I just scrapped it but maybe I should have done a bit more inquiry. <laughs> the, the third letter would have got you there. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, it, it does sound a bit removed, but it also allows you to have a greater impact on the work that you're able to do. Mm. Because if you skill up a teacher, as yeah. opposed to assess and intervene with a young person, mm-hmm. you can affect potentially more of the class and you can embed skills and an environment for learning that, that serves much more than... And again, it gets away from that prescriptive medical model where you're yeah. saying the problem is within the child. Yes. Which is often the often that's the narrative. Yes. Or the problem when actually, if the learning environment was adapted. Yeah. Um, and the needs were met earlier on in their in their life, then that child may have never become a concern to anyone. They may have just felt like they were more, they had a better sense of belonging, that their needs were, you know, they, they more comprehensively were supported. Yeah. And so they never they never flagged up. But mm. if we approach it as okay, which child are we going to assess now and don't yeah. look at the system, yeah. then it becomes self fulfilling and perpetuates the problems that we, we complain about in society. And yeah. I think that feeds into things like racism as much as it does in terms of how we manage ability and intellect Absolutely. and cognitive skills in schools. Yeah. I think you're talking a lot there about like individual the individual model rather than the collectivist kind of community-based um a whole village 
takes a village to raise a child. <laughs> I, 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 I want to get more involved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, someone did a talk about that at one of the BPS meetings, I think a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. I didn't listen. Maybe I should find it. Um, okay, so what what's next for you? So after the doctorate, I know you're like very near the end. Congratulations. You'll get there. Um, what do you want to do afterwards? Um, I kind of want to chill. Like, mm. <laughs> I think you deserve it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm gonna speak frankly in saying that um, it's been very hard for me. Um, and yeah, by no stretch of the imagination have I found any of it easy. I've mm. enjoyed a lot of it, mm. but there have been some significant challenges. And um, life doesn't stop, so you can do your doctorate. Like, <laughs> doesn't stop. Family and friends and daughters, daughter, you know, all, all of these things still require committed care and mm. dedication. Mm. Um, so I think I need to reinvest in those things once I'm able to have yeah. the space to do so. Yeah. And I, I know, you know, friends of mine have talked about losing friends while on the course. I don't know if everyone's as patient as you would want them to be or understanding. Mm. You can't necessarily connect with the, the idea of doing a day's work and then getting on your laptop to do another four hours of assignment writing um it doesn't it doesn't it's not their life and maybe they don't need to connect with that because as far as they're concerned all of their other friends are accessible absolutely Um, so i think there's there's some bridges to be rebuilt Mm. um but also there's a real yeah there's a reinvestment in in family and the loved ones around me who have supported me yeah however that looks i'm definitely gonna (laughs) carve out some time to do that yeah. I'm also going to have a, like, assuming I make it to the end, which you will. would pray I will, then you're know, going to have some sort of massive regretful blowout celebration type thing. Yes. It will be filled with regret, but it will be necessary. <laughs> when you say it will be filled with regret, what are you planning? No, I haven't planned it yet. It might be spontaneous, but it, you, I'm going to need to blow off a lot of steam, mm. is what I'm going to say. Um, maybe I'll get my earpiece finally. Oh, is that that's the steam, the earpiece? Wow. Okay, I was yeah. thinking of like jumping out of a plane, like no, I'm, I'm, going on a road I'm trip. To hold it down, but I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet. But it will be, it will be epic. You want to um, market somehow? I want, I want a hundred percent market mm. because, again, for lots of people doing the course that I'm doing, you know, they 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 they, they joke about how the title doctor doesn't really mean much to them. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Grace. What do, you, what do you think on that? In the sense of, by the time you finish, you're like, "Oh, is that it? I, I feel like I need more. Like, give me something else." Um, for them, they're trying to like, oh, "I'm not even going to use the title," and it's kind of like, oh, it's, "It's a lie." But in, in my in my family, in my household, like, it holds a lot of significance. Mm. Not just an indication of the hard work that's gone into it. Yeah. But also, like, let's be real. I've grown up wanting this since I was a wee little lad. Also, doctors are respected. That's part. I'm not going to lie. That's part of the reason why we get into these roles. Like, Absolutely. we know there's some prestige and status that comes with these titles, and it means a lot to people who hear it and yeah. to you who lives with it. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that feeling because, mm. um, like, I'm, I'm hopefully I'm really humble with it. But my point being is that I don't want to apologize for having su- succeeded to this point in life. You know the, the hard work and the, the knives in my back are sort of my willingness to try 
but yeah, I don't, I don't know. That would be something important for me as well. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying about marking it, I think that is a really good point. And I think, you know, that celebration, not just with others, but of yourself and the recognition of what you've been through. A lot of people are just like, move on to the next thing. I'll get a full-time job. I won't take a break. And then you, but all of a sudden you're like, what am I doing? It's really disconcerting because you've had that pressure for so long. And then all of a sudden it's a different kind of life that you're living. So definitely whatever you need to do, as long as it's legal, um, just, just do it because yeah, YOLO and all that, even though no one says that anymore. (laughs) No, thank you, Grace. And uh, yeah, I, I, I will. And, um, beyond that, yeah. You know, I think people already are securing jobs, so I may mm. I may secure a job before I even finish, which is not unheard. Of. It's more common than not, yeah. if I'm honest, because there's a shortage of education. Yeah. And on top of that, um, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to use my my trainee status, which is mm. in itself interesting. That as a trainee, you still have, you know, people want to be where you are, so people yeah. look to you for advice and guidance. And with that, and I think you're the same, like we've both been involved in voluntary organizations to support the cause, flying psychology, change in how the communities are served by psychology, yeah. the research in psychology, like all that stuff is important to us. Mm. Who, who asked the question, you know, determines that it, it can be so important. And if it comes from a different perspective, yeah. from a less represented voice, yeah. that can have a massive impact on um, the outcomes for certain groups. Mm-hmm. so I want to continue that work and I yeah. think when I'm qualified you know there, there may be more spaces open to me and more yeah. people willing to listen if I'm honest I mean it's it sounds horrible with obviously the tragic murder of George Floyd there this year in particular has been a very interesting year for everybody but I think specifically black people in in diaspora areas like the UK and America especially it's just been very odd so there's a time there's a window of time I feel that people are willing to listen a little bit more maybe understand which was not there even 12 months ago agreed agreed so yeah so let's, let's capitalize absolutely and, and ensure the success of others coming up after us yeah exactly each one teach one as they say yeah, or lift, lift as you climb, my people. Ah, oh, that's a good one. I like that. Um, and I'm just going to come wrap up with like the last question, which is key skills. So, what skills do you feel an aspiring educational psychologist needs to have for them to kind of, you know, get through, do the course, get through the course, and become a competent practitioner? Uh, that's a good question. Um... Well, <laughs> I, I, I would I have to say organizational for one. Mm. So much of the job is juggling the job. Um, yeah. And you spend so much time managing competing commitments, prioritizing work, um, holding on to faces and stories of families that you've worked with. Yeah. Um, and meeting deadlines and timescales that you really shouldn't be put, put in that frame in the first place. Nope. There, there's a statutory element to the job. Yeah, there are legal requirements for the work and as long as EPs are written into that process which is probably forever (laughs) it's going to be the need for EPs to be responsive to schools asking for education health and care plans yeah parents and young people um, and making sure that they can can get the support that they need Mm. that's an honor you know not every profession has been written into 
these kinds of processes to support groups, but um, it comes with a lot of weight and time-bound work. Additional skills will be super, super, super key to that. Uh, yeah, I would say that's up there in terms of importance. Another skill is definitely reflective, reflective mm. practice. Um, reflective, reflexive, all of that good stuff. Is mm. You need to be able to step out of, if I'm honest, your ego um, and mm. think a little bit about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it um, and be open to critique from others help you i'm all about the jahari window in your oh. spot um, and just just thinking about love a jahari window i do it's really so good it's such a good model um thinking about how you can um yeah broaden what you know mm-hmm. and, and disclose more and mm. also seek feedback and critique that helps you because if people do it with you know good intentions and your best interest professional development yeah then why wouldn't you be open to that kind of commentary um it's a very fair point. <laughs> you know, if, if if it is less about your ego and more about your development, then yeah, and that that's a hard lesson for for lots of people to learn. I know mm. I struggled with when I first entered psychology, like that mm. PTSD clinic that I was talking to you about. Yeah, the first supervision I ever had, my supervisor was asking me. He was newly qualified, and to be honest, I don't know if he had all the skills of 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 a, of a excellent supervisor, but he was asking me about my personal life. And my mum had always taught me, like, you know, yeah, well, you can't bring your business to, to work. That's you. That's your business. Mm. Um, but in the context of him wanting to help me in his unique way, mm. that, that was a question that was fair and also meant that I was infusing personal skills, personal experiences with how they may impact on my work. So mm. while he was justified, albeit a bit coarse, yeah. Um, I found that really grated with me. I did it quite a lot. So many things I kept, you know, I'm not saying go and disclose your deepest secrets, but mm. there's an appreciation for the cultural differences that mm. I know mm. that as a young black man stepping into a, a profession that I was not used to. Yeah. Hearing that made me shut down quite a lot and think, is this what they do here? Um, you know what I mean, Grace? Like, yeah. Because it comes out of nowhere. If you're not used to it, if no one's told you that, you're like, what has this got to do with my job? Like, what's going on? <laughs> right, yeah, just tell me what to do and I'll go and do it's it. It's not a counselling session. <laughs> yeah, I'm not here for you. Like, and... Anyway, that was, that was a really steep learning curve. Mm. Um, but honestly speaking, I'm much more confident in myself and mm. my ability to use my, my, my experiences, both personal and professional, in meaningful learning ways Mm. So it's to speak freely in this podcast, for example, speak freely in a peer supervision space or speak freely with my supervisor so as to get the best out of those spaces and mm. make it make it meaningful. Um, so organisational, reflective skills, and I don't know if it's a skill, but I would say, like, I, I think I think it is a job of passion. Like, I don't know if you can be an, a psychologist and not care about people. It's hilarious. Like, <laughs> I've seen it and you're like, eh, it's not for you. It's not for you. Like, yeah, maybe maybe do some training. I just think there's something about wanting to do well um, and holding on to that feeling because it's going to be such an important driving force for you throughout your journey into profession and once you're in the profession um and you know help looks very different to different people yeah but the 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 essence of it is always going to be there and you're always going to have to remember that when Mm. you're not getting paid as much as your friends or when you're 
working crazy hours or when you've got a family or a child on your brain yeah and the type of support you wanted to offer you can't offer mm. you're left with this feeling of incompetence or guilt or shame yeah, yeah. or impotence you're wondering like that that feeling as hard as it is to hold on to um sorry to shake you, you yeah. don't want to hold on to it um it, it it should drive you wanting to improve your practice and mm. be better at the job so as to even if you have to let go of a feeling because mm. someone else has taken on that work or you've handed it over you know why you care you know that you do care and you know that your your heart is in the right place i think intentions need to be solid if i'm honest yeah like going back to the core of why you're doing it and always questioning like what this intervention why am i doing that it goes down to everything that you do and it's, that's where the reflection comes in and i think you only get that with the training really you don't get that any other way unless you're like that there's some people that are naturally quite reflective and can do that automatically but it, it is a learning curve if you're not used to it definitely Absolutely. it definitely and, is yeah learning learning that critique isn't a bad word it's so mm. i think you're, what you're saying is true like you need to yeah it come. you'll be doing a lot of that on the course so mm. getting those skills developed now critical of yourself critical of others critical of systems critical of how power exists and how you are complicit yeah disrupt those systems is so key to being a holistic support for yourself and others so yeah i mean even even me in my second year i was feeling very radicalized i used that (laughs) word deliberately against my course provider i felt horrible towards them i felt like it's so unfair it's been so hard and it was not is this just racism at its core no one taking responsibility for this why is there not help for people like me who can i turn to it's deliberate um they're turning a blind eye to it all these things and then covid and george floyd happened but those feelings didn't go away it kind of softened when i was able to perform better in the course and that mm-hmm. wasn't through it, it mm. I don't know. I, I don't want to go into all sorts of other regions, but no, it's my, okay. my, my thesis really helped me to, to feel better about being on the course because it was, for me, the first time I was able to marry a big part of my identity and my wishes to make a difference in the community, a component of the course that would eventually be the biggest project of my life. So, so picking something from my own brain and get into a big old research project was really, really fulfilling for me and meaningful. So... That, that helped quite a lot, actually, if I'm honest. I think that's where we talk about decolonizing the curriculum. Absolutely this. And, I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but, like, there's been comments on the BPS, Twitter, etc., from people talking about who don't understand what decolonizing is and what it means to people. Yeah. And I think when people have, the, like, a broad stroke a broad brush approach to oh no we don't need this we're objective we're psychologists we don't need that it's pandering it really negates how people how different people um experience things and when you're in an environment when you know something doesn't feel right and you're talking about it, no one's listening and you just feel like so dejected so as soon as you're, you've got the ability to have some autonomy in that learning process, you're like, right, there you go. I can just channel everything into that. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. And um, the, the, the organisation that we both volunteer for, um, mm. the BIP Network, 
has been also quite influential in me feeling validated with mm. my cultural background, mm-hmm. uh, gender and experiences in life being, um, I located those things in a place where I felt like people w- would be interested and could listen and I yeah. could meet like-minded souls yeah. and we could explore these things together in a way that I couldn't do at my course. So yeah. I, I think we have, and I speak for myself, I have been very fortunate to find a group of people like yourself and the rest of the team and other groups as well um, outside of the course and I would recommend that to anyone listening that you find a group of people who think like you and can support um, aspects of your identity uh, and experience that are perhaps not overtly or even really covertly being being addressed or supported or entertained even (laughs) like your mind matters and that your your ideas matter and I think that's so key to absolutely and yeah we did speak about that on the last episode about um finding a network and a, and a group of people like a tribe i hate the term tribe in this context but like a tribe of people that you can um really rely on and just bounce ideas off and you don't feel judged or uncomfortable or you know the odd one out so much yeah exactly yeah exactly. and it is worth saying i am the only black male on my course there's one other male the 15 of us there are yeah there are two males but there were maybe four or five people that identify as, um, you know, a diverse, they wouldn't say a diverse background, but they're not white. Babe. Yeah, I know. We all have got different heritage outside of the UK. And again, that's important and not so common on psychology courses, depending on where you go. So I did my undergraduate at University of Birmingham and let's just say that was not exactly the most diverse place in terms of ethnicity um, and gender. So the majority of that course was probably about 150 people on it. There were about 10 boys, or sorry, 10 males, not boys. <laughs> I was a kid. I was like 19, so they were boys. Um, and in terms of ethnic diversity, I could count on one, two, maybe two hands. Yeah, it was, it wasn't diverse in any stretch of your man- imagination really but yeah it was a different time then <laughs> yeah it's interesting isn't it um because it matters it depends entirely on the context like i do acknowledge my privilege as a man generally speaking although i'm still learning about that on mm. my journey um but yeah in a context of psychology it's largely white female middle class yeah say this you know and uh, not to say that they're not interesting intersections within that group mm-hmm. and i've got lots of friends who are who identify in that demographic but there's something about representation isn't there yeah something about um um reflective of the community you're serving about um uh, a cultural responsiveness and an acceptance for for difference and celebration of that an appreciation for what that then means in terms of you know, concept of learning, concept of formal education, intergenerational trauma, yeah. dealing with a lot of race-based trauma, all these things have got really decent evidence bases to demonstrate the need to diversify the curriculum and also the workforce to, to, to manage better these these things. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jason. Honestly, it's been so good talking to you. Um about your experiences there's a lot of things I'm going to sit back and learn about you know learn 
and think about and reflect myself um, from that conversation. But yeah, just thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being so open and honest and reflective in the space. And yeah, um, you can come again. <laughs> thank you, Grace. It's been awesome. I mean, you know, I do a lot of interviews of other people, but it's nice sometimes uh, when you have that space. So I really appreciate the space and uh, your listening ear. And uh, yeah, this is an awesome, awesome uh, podcast series. Like I would definitely recommend Thank you. Um, more of this type of stuff. Mm. Keep it, keep it no problem. We'll do. All right. I'm going to stop recording now. Thank you for being here and I'll speak to you soon.